And there came a day. A day unlike... Wait. No, that's been done. Hmm. Who knows what evil lurks in... No, that is that other thing. What has yellow skin and rights? Ah, forget it. You're listening to Panelology. Excelsior, oh, damn it. Welcome to episode 273 of Panelology. I'm Alex. And I am Brian. How you doing, Brian? Ooh, busy, busy, busy. <laughs> we have rescheduled and pushed back our starting time three or four times now. At least, yes. The, the first time was at my own like personal request because I wanted to have more time to read books because I haven't up until today. Yeah. Uh, uh, the, the second and third postponements were uh, work-related. So. Yeah. So here we are. We are uh, recording up against a schedule, up against my schedule. I've got a board meeting on Zoom to be on in an hour and a half. So we're going to move quickly today. Here we go. Let's start. Beyond the Breach, number one. What is this, Brian? Uh, yeah, this is a uh, this is a new book from Aftershock. Uh, it's Ed Brisson writing. Uh, Damien. Oh, wow, I'm so not going to get these names right. Um, Cosiero. Cosiero, uh, Cosiero. Is doing art. Uh, Patricio Del Pecci is coloring. And Hassan Atzman Elhow is the letterer. There you go. Exactly. Um, yeah, this is um, a story about uh, somebody, uh, a, a girl in her late 20s in California. She's taking a trip because some bad stuff has happened with her boyfriend and her sister um and she needed to get away for a while so she has this trip planned like up the california uh, up the west coast essentially um and she gets to the giant redwood forest and um the event happens we still don't know exactly what it is other than uh everybody kind of wrecks their car and there's now monsters everywhere oops yeah, so the rest of this is sh there's a child in, that's trapped in a car near where she uh where where she kind of comes comes into this whatever this is uh this event and her, the parents from that car did not make it and so she takes this child and is uh trying to figure out what the hell's going on and the rest of this issue is her trying to figure out what the hell's going on and getting them somewhere safe at least. So is this fantasy, sci-fi, survival horror? Where do you, where do you kind of place mm. it? Because I could see from what you've said it going a number of directions. Yeah, I can see that too. <laughs> um, and I don't know that they have fully established it yet. Okay. I'm going to go with um, somewhere in the horror fantasy genre of, of a, it's, there's definitely survival, heavy survival aspects of it. But the setting is kind of that horse fantasy kind of. Cool. Yeah. I think it might have sounded like you said horse fantasy. I'm leaving that in if it did. <laughs> we all know what you meant, but that's funnier. <laughs> it is. Anything else about Beyond the Breach? 
Uh, no, I mean, I enjoyed it. I like these characters. I like this setup. You know, it's a, it was a, it was a good introduction. Good first issue. Uh, I'll know more with issue two, I think. Cool. Yeah. Moving on then to Dark Blood number one. This is written by LaToya Morgan with art by Walt Barna, colors by AHG, and letters by Andworld Design. Uh, this is the first issue of a six-issue miniseries. Uh, set in the 1950s about a pilot who fought in World War II, who is a black man who works at a diner, and is, in this issue, being harassed by a patron who, I guess, felt like he was not polite enough. In other words, by an old racist white man. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, just a super brief uh, programming note. We have a lot of number ones this week. We do. So, um, so prepare to hear a lot of, uh, yeah, this was a good introduction. Yes, with it. <laughs> um, and this was, again, this is, um, this is one of those that, that uses the method of, um, it kind of throws us into a scene in current day and then during that scene flashes back to give us kind of the, the history that it wants to tell us. It's sort of a double in media res because yeah, we are it is. Yeah. in the thick of it in the present of the book, which is the fifties and in the thick of it in the past of the book, which is 10 years earlier. Right. Um, both of these dates relative to the variants. Yes. Um, and on the night in the 50s, we see Double A, or Aldridge, like, he's just heading home, he's got his bag of food, and this dickhead racist is giving him shit because of uh, inadequate white power fantasies. Uh, uh, yeah, he wasn't polite enough to him, I suppose, right? And So, you know, but then uh, you do as you do and pull a gun on somebody because of that, right? So, And the thing I like about this, because the solicitation for this pitched it as being, like, in the vein of Lovecraft Country. And I can see us get there, but I like that this starts in a more grounded place. Very definitely. It, it is, we are not even approaching that yet. And I think it's important because this is a book about race and power written by mm -hmm. a, from a black creative team, written by a black woman. Uh... It doesn't read as a power fantasy. Aldridge is basically begging this guy to stand down, not because he's afraid of him, but because right. he is afraid of hurting him and dealing with the repercussions of that. Yeah. Which is and what happens. Yeah. yeah, he literally just wants to go home. He's like, and he, you know, he's like, I'm sorry if you feel like you were, you know, I'm sorry if you felt offended. I didn't mean that, you know, trying to de-escalate the situation in every way yeah. he can think of. And, uh, yeah. And then without him actually doing anything other than, you know, not getting killed, mm -hmm. um, the scares, the, 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 the white guy enough that he turns and runs in front of a car and gets hit. And then, you know, when he tries to save him, then he is then accused of, you know, wrongdoing and causing him to die. So of course, wow. Uh, and we also get a, a brief, brief glimpse at six months earlier so between mm. what we saw i'm sorry six six months yeah six before months before the, before variance. the variance so much closer to the present of the book but after what we between what we see in the past and what we see in the, in 1955 yes um which kind of raises the question of like it almost implied to me sort of a a 
causality between his plane going down and his waking up with powers. Very, yeah, I, I get the feeling that is definitely part of this as well. But Especially it's, given the, the design or the whatever we see on his back. Yeah. It's yeah. very much only a hint at that. Yeah. Um, I also want to just mention the art and colors in this because I really like mm. this book's style. Um, both palettes, both palettes pull from the same sorts of blues and oranges and browns and like light greens, yellows, mm -hmm. but they look distinct from one another. You get a little more red, a little more saturation in the fifties and everything's like a little bit colder, a little bit, uh, washed out isn't the right word, but it's, it's distinct. Uh, the color palette, and the colors are a little flatter in at least some panels in the past. So I think it's really... Well, uh, yeah, the ones in the 40s almost dithered, kind of like newsprint. Yeah. In, in a way, yeah. So I think there are a lot of really smart, subtle touches to help differentiate those two timelines without it just being a matter of, well, one of these is in sepia or is washed out or... <laughs> right. Yep, I agree. Yeah, in addition, that color palette in the 50s especially really lends itself. There's a couple of scenes, like the scene where the guy gets hit by the car. I'm actually looking that at that page. That looks like such a 50s kind of, just the, the way the car kind of looks like it's leaping out of the page, kind of almost like a 3D attempt, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, that, that just screams 50, and that color palette with it just screams 50s to me. Well, and I think that page in particular... Uh, is probably the clearest example, and you can sort of work backwards in like the the pages, the panels in the alley while Avery's being accosted by this white man. Uh, the color palette and the heavy block coloring mm -hmm. in the second and third panels on that scene where the guy gets hit remind me so much of a horror comic, like very specifically almost a Francesco Francavilla. Oh yeah, kind of I color can see that. Yeah, yeah. And I think starting from there and sort of working back, like you see those moments in the alley where like things break orange, and either Avery or the white guy, really both, are terrified in those moments. Like there's a really smart use of mm -hmm. solid block color to show those really heightened moments. I agree. I agree. I really dug yeah, it. Really good first issue. Yeah. Very, very much enjoy this. Let's move over to DC and talk about Catwoman number 33. This is written by Rom V, one of three books by Rom V this week. Mm -hmm. Art is by Fernando Blanco. Colors are by Jordi Belair. And letters are by Tom Napolitano. This book just keeps getting better and better, I feel like. Right? Holy crap. Like, I have loved it since Rom V took it over. But the more he manages to like connect the threads that he's been setting up, the more exciting it gets for me. Yeah. We get, um, we get Clayface showing up. So Nigma is already working for her kind of since she saved him. Right. We know yeah. that she saved Ivy and brought Ivy, uh, uh, back to recuperate. Um, but here Clayface shows up and he's not alone. He brings friends. He does bring friends. With friends like um, these, who needs enemies? Wow, you're not kidding, because uh, it's Killer Croc and Knockout and Firefly and Cheshire. Not, you know, I, I do think one of the things that does strike me is this, is if you look at them, all of them at some point or another have been on that 
teetering edge of what Catwoman is Mm -hmm. now, right? Sometimes trying to be better and be a hero. Yeah, I mean, I I still, whenever Clayface shows up, go back to the James Tynan detective run, where Mm -hmm. he was actually on Batman's team. Yeah. Like, I root for Clayface, and I'm still, like, getting used to the fact that I root for Clayface. I, I know, I know, right? And it's all about, he, he's talking, you know, it's all about second chances, which is all, you know, which is Catwoman's whole thing with these things. And that real, that theme goes through this whole story here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but essentially, you know, Valley is still hunting her. We know that. And she, she, she and this group are trying to figure out the best way to deal with this authority lockdown and the magistrate coming in yeah yeah we uh speaking of valley have learned that in october jean paul will show up again you and i had speculated about that after the annual Mm -hmm. but uh we have confirmation that he will be back soon all right i am looking at this this fight between father valley and selena and Jordy Belair, man. Jordy Belair. And <laughs> this fire that he is just walking out of. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you do that. Uh, it yeah, looks I guess you're Jordy Belair. So cause... good. Yeah. And um Selena does not end up doing well against him. <laughs> no, no, Selena does does not. And then I do have a question about this, the very last page. Yeah. Do you think that's really who they're portraying here? I mean... Or is that her who she sees? I know the answer because I've read solicitations. Okay. So I... My 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 gut instinct says it's it's not who they have drawn here. I, I think it's... Who is it? Harper? What's his name? Hadley? Hadley. Hadley. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think we'll see in two weeks or a month. Okay. However a often month. this book comes out now. This is monthly. Okay. This is monthly. DC yeah. has a couple that have been bi-weekly lately. Yeah, they thank God they've cut that yeah. so far back, but yeah, yes. Um, also, I think Fernando Blanco tweeted this week that he is moving on to another title. So uh, I just want to shout out how good his art has been in this book. Yep, um, all the kudos. Excited to see who takes over and joins the team after him, but... I will also miss him because he has been killing it. Speaking of another book that is not a number one, but kind of feels like it. That would be The Flash, number 772. Yeah, yeah number 772 feels like a number one. <laughs> in a lot of ways, I feel like it is. In in, I feel yeah. like in oh, a more, yeah. in a different era of DC Comics, the mm-hmm. arc that Flash just wrapped up would have been a miniseries, and this would have been a new number one. Agreed, one hundred percent. And while I would not have been opposed to that because I think that makes sense, I also get like wanting people to feel like this is a continuation because, in a real way, this is finally like continuing Wally as the Flash. Yeah, and I can guarantee you, after uh, after Action and Detective, they're gonna keep these hundreds and hundreds of book numbers. Until they get to a thousand yeah. for all of these, definitely for like the A list rosters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For the Wonder Woman's, the Flashes, the your Justice those, League yeah. members. Yep. Uh, Wally is having to deal with the ramifications of not having existed for a while. 
yeah, that that, that kind of sucks. It, it, you know what it reminded me? It reminded me kind of in the MCU, all of these people who came back. Yeah, right. I mean, that's yeah. that's the closest other example is the people who blipped. Right. Um, because now you know Linda makes decent money as a reporter, but between how much he eats and everything else, like Wally needs to get a job. I did. I so we're gonna we're gonna circle back to this in a minute. But I did love that one of the things they specifically pointed out was, you know, yeah, they have a huge grocery bill because he has to eat so much. Yeah. Um, I was a little worried if I had if we had not just come off of an arc that made me even more nervous that wound up working right. really well. I would have been a little worried about the like almost millennial anxiety that is written into Wally here. The, oh, suddenly I'm in this world where I don't, all the rules I've been taught on how to get a job and how to succeed don't apply. Mm -hmm. And I could have seen that being executed in a way that like made this issue and this arc wholly about that. And while I think it's good to acknowledge that, I'm, I'm glad that we kind of move past that into more premise than just that. Obviously, Wally's going to have trouble fitting in. And sure. that's okay. But I like that it's more than just that context. So if you start reading this or you flip through it in a comic shop and you're like, uh, I don't know if I want the millennial anxiety right now. Maybe it hits too close to home. Yeah. Know that it's bigger than just sort of that introduction. Then we get, as is super obvious from the cover of this issue, we get Heat Wave. And the story and motivation that they're giving Mick Rory here is oh wow yeah I mean it's uh basically Mick Rory's first entrance in this is not basically literally it is him being told that his cancer is back yeah and he there's nothing more they can do so he should he should enjoy the time he has yeah. left and do what makes him happy and what makes Mick Rory happy burning everything burning down the house yeah, exactly um yeah it's i mean it kind of ends on that comedic beat uh but it's really a sad moment like yeah oh yeah because that's i mean that's when flash works right the rogues are if villains still kind of sympathetic villains villains who have just mm. enough like good in them right humanity in them um I'm also glad to see who I'm at this point assuming is a, re a, a recurring character in this run. I mean, you almost have to think that, right? Uh, given that he was a fixture in the first arc and has now given Wally a job. Yep. Michael Holt, Mr. Terrific, is back. He is. And uh, so Wally gets a job at the Speedy Lube, and apparently he's not so speedy at the Speedy Lube. Why does a mechanic need to know about computers, he asks. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did chuckle at that yeah. I, gotta, I gotta tell you um, how, but, how uh, long yeah. was he trapped out of time <laughs> right and then um, I absolutely love that Michael Holt shows up and he's like oh hey how are you you know what's going on and he's like yeah because um, you know it turns out I own the speedy lube and the super speed dating dot com service and all of the uh, speedy themed things that exist in Central City because you know you got to be on brand. Um, yeah, I own those all those investments. So uh, when you got hired, I saw your name and knew that you were working here. Yeah, and uh, 
this is not the job for you. I've got a job for you. Come work with scientists. Yeah. And while he's like, um, what? I'm, I'm not a scientist. Yeah. I Appar- apparently I'm not even a great mechanic anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I'm really curious to see where that goes. I, I am too. And I, it's very clearly, because here's the thing. And, and Holt is right about this. And I, I think this is where he's going with it is Wally is obviously very intelligent. And what he does know is the speed force Mm -hmm. and how temporal events work. And I think just that knowledge and, 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 you know, problem solving, right? Yeah. As the flash, clearly he has many, many, many times, you know, figured out the way to solve an issue. And I think that's what Holt is looking for him to apply to this. Yeah. Yeah. If there was any doubt before this, I think this issue also makes pretty clear that other than Superman, who who revealed his secret identity very recently mm-hmm. in the timeline, most characters who have at some point in the past revealed who they are have their secret identities intact now. Wally is very much maintaining a secret identity here. Yes, very, very much. Um, yeah. Which I really didn't have any expectation one way or the other there. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm glad that we kind of get that acknowledgement and sort of know what those rules will be. Yeah, and you almost make it, you you almost wonder if it's because right everybody forgot that he even existed. So right, of course they forgot that as well. So before we move on from this, I have one question for you, Brian. Okay. Do you uh, know what this like flaming halberd streaking through the cosmos is? I do not. Okay. Do you? Nope. Okay. It's a flaming halberd. That's all I got. Yeah. Yes, it is. I don't know. Nightwing, number 82. Written by Tom Taylor with pencils by Bruno Redondo, Rick Leonardi, and Neil Edwards. Inks by Bruno Redondo, Andy Lanning, and Scott Hanna. Colors by Adriano Lucas, and letters by Wes Abbott. The Mystery of Melinda Zuko, the cover promises. And... Pretty much delivers because we get, uh, you know what? This may be one of my favorite stories about the the Flying Graysons and his and Dick's parents. I really like it. We got, I do. Too. I feel like we got some good storytelling at the beginning of Rebirth about them as well when Raptor was introduced. Yeah, that's true. And this feels, I think this works so well for me because it feels in the same vein as that. It doesn't build on that explicitly or or even reference it, but mm-hmm. it feels consistent with that, and it feels... It's well executed that it earns, I think, the sort of retcon and reveal. Yeah, and I'll be honest, one of the things I am very relieved about, because there's no reason not to do it this way, right, mm-hmm. is you know we find out that, yes, yeah, she is indeed his sister, and that it was something that happened before his parents actually got together. Yeah. Like, I feel like there's a lot of writers that would have chose to have done that differently just for the salaciousness of it, mm-hmm. so to speak. You know what I mean? The shock factor, at least, right? Well, yeah. Right. And there's and there, there's no reason to do that at all. So, well, I, I don't know. It was, it was a super small detail, but I liked it. I mean, to that end, I, I like that the first thing... Dick says after he learns the, learns the truth is mm-hmm. I'm sorry for what he did to both of us. Yeah. Like he immediately like connects in that sort of empathetic way 
Which, I mean, it's Dick. Of course he does. But there's no anger. There's no denial. There's no questioning everything he knows about himself. Which, again, I think would have been an easy trap to fall into. Yeah. It's, and here's the thing. That would have been super, even more unwelcome, given what he just came out of. Right. He doesn't need another self-identity crisis. Yeah. Yeah. Um. It, it, no, this was this was great, and I I am super excited about where this might go. By the way, the other thing, how fucking amazing was it when he was like, "Oh, I gotta have my mask back." She's like, "No, I think I already know." He was like, "No, you don't understand." Barbara, whatever, whoever, whatever <laughs> backup you've called in, call them off. <laughs> well, and in fact, I was going to ask, uh, how did you how did you enjoy seeing Starfire in the book? Oh, yeah. We get Donna, Starfire, Cyborg, Raven, Beast Boy, and Batman all responding. Yes, like everybody was. Con- and, and I think I, 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 I this I'm, this was maybe just me reading into it, right? I totally read part of that as all of them kind of over responding because of what he has just been through. I think that's probably fair. I don't go there because I kind of tapped out for the whole Rick Grayson sure, thing. Sure, sure. Um, but I think you're right. I think that's certainly a logical way to read what's on the page. Yeah. Yeah. With that many people responding. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, it, it was, I thought it was a nice touch, yeah. but yeah, God, I am loving it everything about this book yeah it's incredible firing on all cylinders gorgeous well-written so like quintessentially dick all of it Mm -hmm. while we are titans adjacent let's talk about shazam number one written by tim sheridan art by clayton henry colors by marcelo maiolo and letters by rob lee i think in a very real way like this could have just been an arc in Teen Titans, but I like that we get this separate focus so we can really drill down on what Billy is going through in it, not as part of an ensemble piece. I agree, and I think uh, we may be diverging from how heavily the Titans are involved. Yes, I think certainly yeah. for the action of this this four-issue miniseries, mm-hmm. probably after this issue they are less visible uh, certainly right away, at least less visible. Yeah. But I like that we're going to take a couple of cast members along for the ride. I do too. And I'm really interested in this sort of central mystery of what's going on, uh, how it relates to the larger sort of cosmological changes of the multiverse. Mm-hmm. And how it also ties into what we saw in Future State, which, like, very, very directly, th- this mini series is sort of laying groundwork for the how did we get there of of Titans Academy and Shazam in Future State. Yep. You know who I really like seeing in this? Uh, Mary. Mary. Yeah, yeah. Mary shows up. Um, and like. Is such great character motivation to move him out of where he's at. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, so good, so good. So we we've kind of known for a while Billy's powers are on the fritz, mm-hmm. and this is very much dealing with that specifically. And and well, and the two things that are part of that is one we we get a possible explanation for why. Yes. In addition to the fact that Shazam has been killed by Darkseid, the Wizard Shazam. Yes. Right. 
Which right. they don't know yet. They just know they can't get correct. in touch with correct. them. Correct. Correct. Yeah, this is speaking from an, uh, an yeah. audience standpoint, right? Um, so in addition to that, the Rock of Eternity has been moved from its place at the center of the universe. It has fallen down into hell. Yeah. Um, and then, um, uh, shoot, I can't, uh, where was I going with the second Were part? you going to mention two. the impact that has on the Shazam family and especially Freddy? Yes, that is, ex- yes, uh, yes, absolutely. Because if you remember, right? The reason that Mary and Freddy and the rest of the Shazam family have their powers is because Shazam has shared a portion of his powers with them. And the fact that he no longer has access to these powers means they don't either. And as a very real consequence of that, Freddy does not have much longer left. Correct. So Shazam, Billy, uh, Billy feels some urgency to get his powers back so he can give freddy powers again and save his friend brother yes yep who is uh who is billy's companion on his road trip to hell uh well i the one that we know is going is dane who is um you know the foremost mystical student uh protege of raven at this point Mm -hmm. at the academy um who very clearly we're going to find out has ties somehow somewhere else because he talks about how he needs to go there for his own reasons yeah so i'm super interested as to what or where or who he may be tied to i can't help right? but wonder if he has some connection to neron right because we saw neron yeah. very very much in the middle of future state yeah Yep, that's fair. Uh, the other, um, the other sort of future state element that returns here is the idea of borrowing the H dial and the detail that it does not work well for people who already have powers. Correct. Yeah, because uh, Miguel may be the other person that's going with yeah. him. I'm. Uh, they weren't super clear on whether or not he's actually going to go or not, but yeah, he offered. He certainly, he certainly wanted to. Right. Yeah. yeah to help um yeah i like it and like you i like that we're gonna drill down on this and focus on just billy and what's going on there let's talk superman and the authority number one of four (laughs) i don't know what i expected but it wasn't this it wasn't this but i loved this oh yeah that's not i was gonna say that is not to say it wasn't good it's just i see where very clearly this is not in continuity well it's funny you say that well, mm, well, I want to I want to yeah. mention just I don't know I don't know how the math works out, right? I don't know mm-hmm. exactly how pieces will line up. This is very clearly not Earth Zero, right? Yeah, I guess that's what I sh- should mean by that. But DC has said that the events of this will feed into Action Comics, and there is an October cover for Action Comics featuring the Authority. And I mention this because I've seen a lot of people online speculating that this is just, like, totally an Elseworlds story. Mm-hmm. And I just want to, like, get in front of that and say, no, it's it's apparently not. Apparently this will actually tie into what is going on in Infinite Frontier in the main continuity. Not necessarily the event in Infinite Frontier, just this current story cycle before we get into it can we talk about Mikel Hanin and Jordi Belair I mean always because there is something about and I don't know if it's a function of palette or 
the level of detail or the the choices to use these sort of wide you know landscape style panel layouts or honestly probably all of those things but this feels so much like peak wildstorm visually it it does and i can tell you what a huge piece of that is i it, it struck me as i was reading because I, I had the exact same thought like i was like oh yeah this kind of like from the art and visuals i get that this is like wildstorm esque i can tell you what a huge part of that is and that is um the the detail and how the faces are drawn yeah yeah i think because right. that was always a wild storm thing like the faces are always like super detail i'm not i i don't want to say realistic but like you know there's no like just artistic shading of color like it's very very specific well, in the details that it draws they the are they are expressive in the way that like a close-up shot of a face in a film is expressive yeah exactly and that's that's kind of why i leaned into the the widescreen panels mm-hmm. because that kind of horizontal panel i think was a big part of what made especially yeah. early uh early authority comics feel the way they feel like going back and reading some of those 2001 authorities or 99 authorities like Mm -hmm. absolutely that sort of of cinematic framing was a big part of the style choice for that agree so yeah you're you're spot on that it feels very much in that vein um can we talk about our speculation of who the bad bad boy in this is gonna be uh yeah who are you thinking do you have ideas? I mean, there's a part of me that says, at a very, like, fundamental level, if this is an older Superman looking for a team that will do the things the Justice League wouldn't or couldn't and actually make a proactive difference, that the person pulling together the rogues to fight almost has to be a Lex Luthor. So, yeah, the, the two that came to my mind are Lex right mm-hmm. is obviously one the other is and i think uh, it, if so i think it's going to be a very deliberate choice because of what's going on right now in action and that's mongol mongol would be an interesting call too yeah specifically i think just the 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 armor silhouette that we get of him yeah yeah seem that's that that kind of immediately brought mongol to mind so i could see that yeah um but uh it scares the hell out of me that eclipso was one of these people he's pulling in yeah i i don't don't... totally know that i place all the others one of them looks like she might be rose wilson maybe um but that's definitely eclipso hanging out in the corner yeah that the eclipso there's no mistaking yes so i don't know who the i don't know who the one with the goggles and the white could be unless uh um there well there's a couple of Think, one, it could be an owl person just because the goggles a little bit, or it could be, it almost looks like a, a Dr. Savannah, right? I could see that. You know where my brain went first, which is a wild pull? Hmm. It looks like kind of an older uh, gizmo. Oh, that is a crazy pull, but I like it. I like it. I get, yeah, but regardless of this, the, 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 the meat of this story and 100% the, the sell of it mm-hmm. is, is the Superman Manchester Black interaction. Yes. Yeah. So 
I, I kind of alluded to the basic premise here, which is Superman is older and realizes maybe the world needed more drastic action than the Justice League ever took. Basically, they thought they didn't have to try, that things would just get better if they existed. So he recruits Manchester Black to lead a team that will actually do good. Um, And by the way, Superman is losing his powers. Yes, which does feel very much like it's in line with with the current Earth Zero yeah. storyline. Yeah, so uh, this is all very interesting. Yeah. I, I'm, yeah, imagine that, Grant Morrison writing something that's interesting. I know. <laughs> Who would have thought? Well, and apparently they've been working on this for a while. So uh, they've said that this will probably be some of their last DC work for a little bit, some of their last comics work for a little bit before they focus on like TV and movies because they yeah. want to try that out. Okay. Um, so on the one hand, like I'm already sad. Does that mean there are only like three more issues of Grant Morrison comics in the immediate future? But I'm excited to see where this goes and I'm excited to see what mm. they do with TV and film. Yeah, me, me too. Can't wait. Loved this. Yeah. I will also mention we don't we don't see a whole lot more of the authority than just Superman and Manchester Black here. Right, um, not yet. But I love the idea that Manchester Black has basically every anti-hero on speed dial. Yes. And a couple of them have said, uh, we'll let you know after we finish up what we're doing right now. Yeah. <laughs> I do like the idea of Manchester Black playing on a more heroic side like there's an almost john yeah. constantine vibe here very much so yeah like I, like it wouldn't here's the thing like i totally see both of them in the same light can you imagine trying to put both of them on the same team though no because i mean they would no. they would they would immediately burn up all the air in any room they're in yes like, <laughs> no other character can exist on a page with them uh it's just impossible yeah. So good. All right, let's go. Bermuda, number one. This is a new, I believe, six-issue, maybe five-issue miniseries from John Lehman, uh, written and lettered by John Lehman, with art by Nick Bradshaw and colors by Lynn O'Grady. Um, and this is very much sort of a, like, pulp Tarzan adventure-inspired story. Yes. Yeah, the whole crash landing. Yeah. Um, but without necessarily the cultural baggage of that era of pulp storytelling. I would say very much not, for very obvious reasons, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah the hero of this is Bermuda, who is, you know, a young female <laughs> who's who saves him. Just yeah. incredible. I absolutely love her. She is a fantastic character. No patience for bullshit. Nope. Incredibly capable and competent. Just, like, shows up and saves this kid, and it's like, yes, the slavers have your sister, and if you don't want them to have you, you'll run too. Uh, I'm going either way. Okay, thanks, bye. Yep. Okay, thanks, bye. But what about my sister? Yeah, we're not saving her right now, so let's go. Get to the giant chameleon. Yes. You know, the, the chameleon mount, right? Yeah. That you get if you bought the, uh, the deluxe version of the video game. Yes. <laughs> uh um but then we find out that their their dad uh is running this has this project that turns out maybe he was trying to open the gateway of the bermuda triangle so yeah the was... the kid who washes up he and his sister are the children of a wealthy billionaire technologist 
uh, whose government contracts are using his equipment to open portals and didn't think he would find out. Um, yeah. Yeah. I love some of these. Uh, I guess, I guess these are cover variants that were at the back of this. Yeah. Yeah. Those are gorgeous. There's a Dan Panosian variant that I really love. Yeah. I love the coloring on it, uh, which he colored it too. Yeah. Yeah. So fun. So fun. Good. Good. <laughs> Very good first issue. Well, before we before we <laughs> totally move on from it, can we talk yeah. about the art in this book? Oh yeah, because it's beautiful. Just it, it, and it fits this. Yeah, it's beautiful and it fits, but the insane level of detail. I mean, this could only be a mini series to maintain this level of detail. Yeah, like the all of the veins and the shadows and the detail in the wood, the jungle trees and the branches and the leaves and the like everything Mm -hmm. yeah and the scales on the chameleon right like everything and it's clear that like even just the black and white inks would be super detailed Oh, yeah. But Len O'Grady's coloring is like playing with shade and texture in a way that highlights and reinforces how much detail is already there. So yep. you look at like moss on a log, and like there are all these individual little tufts drawn, but then the colors change and get shadowy and get you know, change tone in ways that like actually give it so much more depth and texture that makes it look like this gross, moist log. Yep, agreed. Yeah, uh, yeah, but I don't, I'm with you. I don't know how they put this level of detail in this. Well, and there's also a map on the back that, uh, I mean, it's the same art team doing the map, I'm sure, but like, clearly they've thought about what's in this world. I wonder if we're going to get like an annual mini series like Layman's doing with Chu. That could be very fun. Yeah. Like, just stories set here on the island of Triangle. There is a T-Rex Valley. I need I need to know about that. The Spider Forest. The Viking Village, right? Tentacle Beach. <clears throat> you know what? I'm going to let that one go. Well, you know what? We will, we will segue from there. Homesick Pilots number seven. Written by Dan Waters. Art and colors by Casper Wingard. Letters by Aditya Bidikar and design by Tom Muller. Or as we call it, the front runner for uh, comic of the year, right? Probably, <laughs> yep. Oh my god. So last last issue, the beginning of the second arc, Sauce checking in with Mag and Rip. Yep. Who are we following this issue, Brian? Amy and Buzz, who we are super happy to find out are actually still alive. They are, <laughs> although... They're haunted now? I mean, isn't everybody in this book at some well, point? Well, fair. Haunted, <laughs> in a, so, um... haunted in a new and specific way that, like, when they revealed, I just cackled at. Yeah, so uh, it turns out, you know, the house that um that, that she possessed and possessed her, she bonded with, I guess is the right way the to say James it. The old James house. Yeah, the old James house. Um, Yeah, it's still alive, too. Well, it turns out probably the only person that didn't survive is the video cassette. <laughs> um and um she and buzz have been on the run hopping the rails for six months now and or three months whatever it is and um are trying to get away because the house won't leave the water but keeps following <laughs> <laughs> oh 
yeah so like any she can sense it and knows that it's there and um finally then conf- sort of confronts them and buzz stands up to the house and says you know no she doesn't want to go back to you and the house is like yeah but we're bonded she'll know that she needs us we can wait yeah which is well only a little only terrifying partly true well and only partially true because it turns out like not all the spirits of the house feel that way yeah yeah some of them are gonna wreak havoc on their own yeah um and then we we so we just get like a couple of snapshot panels of um uh rip and um meg meg but i like what it did which is to set up the parallel between you know each of these two groups with two people who you know there's one who is bonded or haunted in a way and they're both kind of on their own yeah right even though you know um meg and rip are with the uh, whatever the, the this government agency type place is they're they're on their own within that right yeah uh, and i love this parallel that they're setting up between the two of them i agree yeah i also want to mention okay. i know i know we always talk about how great casper Wingard's colors are mm. but there's about a three-page scene where buzz and amy are just sitting like on the shore at sunset that's the one that I had pulled up right when you uh, said it. Yep. And the coloring is just, it's so subtle and desaturated, but still feels so warm mm-hmm. and like comfortable. It's it, it feels like what you would want to see sitting on a beach looking at the sunset. Yeah, it is. The coloring in it is nostalgic in a way that reinforces what the narrative says about that moment. And I absolutely yeah, it... adore that. Yeah, it literally follows that scene with, um, uh, I, I I guess I wanted to show you that because so that you know not everything is terrible all the time. Yeah, um, and then just the next page turn is like coming out of that sort of sunset into another sunset with, I'm gonna say mm-hmm. a mech rising up from the water, and I just love the composition of that page. Oh, and that, that was moment. that was very cool the way they did that. Yes. Yeah, another number one. Do you have another number one in you, Brian? Sure, let's go for one more. Uh, to quote Jen, making fun of her dogs, Mom! <laughs> Mother of Madness, number one. Written by Amelia Clark and Marguerite Bennett, with art by Layla Lays, colors by Triona Farrell, and letters by Haley Rose Lyon. What did you think of this? I liked this overall. I think, I mean, any three-issue miniseries that is introducing a new character mm-hmm. has a lot of work that it has to do, especially in that first issue. Yeah. And this issue is doing a lot of that work. It is introducing the character and her history and the world and... The rules and, yeah. Yeah. There is a lot of... There is a lot of exposition. There is a lot of explanation. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I think carries the book through that is its tone. Well, and the fact that it 100% knows what it is and knows, like, it literally is almost for, it is, you know what, I don't want to say it's fourth wall breaking. I think it's, like, in the fourth wall. I mean, it, in a very literal sense, it is, because it's doing direct address. It is, it is, but, like, 
it's it's like it's just peeking out of the fourth wall. <laughs> I mean, yes, but this yeah. this is what I'm getting to with tone because it yeah. is it is aware of the fact that it has a lot of work to do. At one point, uh, in the narration, she even has the line. Look, you sat through 23 Marvel movies, you can give me five more pages to tell you my history. Yeah, I thought that was brilliant. Um, and there's there are some real world references of that that, sh- that plays on this about like who this character is, you know, about like, yeah, I, I I've done a passive run of Undertale on my very first try. Yes, even mm-hmm. the bullet hell like it references things that are like very modern. Yes zeitgeist type things modern retro for her i get that yeah i get that that's you know a couple of years a couple of years ago now well, few years ago now but, but I, still i'm taking the segue because i think it's a really smart choice yeah one of the things and there's a whole letter by amelia clark in the back that i'd recommend reading yep. about i would too um what she wants to do with this comic why she is late why she is leaning into overtly feminist concepts yes um and i think it's smart to set it in the future because it gives it gives her room her and marguerite bennett room to like go kind of over the top with the sexism and the harassment and the way that is Mm -hmm. normalized in a way that is certainly off-putting and certainly meant to be but Mm -hmm. that feels like it has become more exaggerated over time Yep. than like it is being yeah, it's all a bit hyperbolic yeah right? and i think yeah. i think because it is set in that future there is room for hyperbole yes i also think that you know because of how compressed the storytelling is ultimately like is it really that hyperbolic maybe in the overt ways that the the business owner talks about the rules Mm-hmm. But I'll also say, like, this is the week where Activision Blizzard is being sued by the government of California for gross sexual harassment um, and toxic corporate culture. So, like, is it really that far afield of anything now? I doubt it. Certainly you and I don't have that experience by virtue Correct. of being white men. Yeah. Um. That being said, can I say one of the things that I really loved about their choices is yes. uh, her her discussion of, yes, there is all of this that exists out there. That is not to say that there are not amazing men that are out there and that this affects them, too, because – and hear me when I say that. This is her saying this, but not in the same way, obviously, yeah. right? But like, yeah, you get lumped in and blamed for some of this stuff that for that there's a lot of good guys out there that aren't that way. Well, and she goes a step further than that, too, and points out this is toxic masculinity. And while, yes, it is a different experience for women than for men, like the existence of toxic masculinity makes it harder to exist as a healthy, balanced man in the world. Yep. Yep. Um, and she mentions that she, at one point in the the story, calls out white feminism specifically as othering still uh, uh, other marginalized folks. And while I think, while I think that there is room for more of that in issue two and issue three, actually taking an overtly intersectional look at the book's feminism. Certainly she is telegraphing that that is her intention. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and she she acknowledges that through the treatment of women of color, women with disabilities, even like you said, the mental health of men existing in a world mm-hmm. like this. Yep. Hey, uh, Triona Farrell's colors. Um, I like the oh, art. I'm sorry, do I have to say more than they're absolutely amazingly brilliant? I like Layla Lays' art and style a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and Triona Farrell's colors are maybe some of my favorite work of hers I've ever seen in this book. Yeah, I, I, I can't. I, I can't think of... I certainly can't think of anybody I would rather be doing this with with the result that came out yeah um i really dug it i've i think i've seen mostly positive reviews online i don't usually look at read a lot of reviews before we record but i did kind of poke around for this one to see how it's being received it seems to be generally received pretty well good um and i'm glad for that based on this like i'd be down for like at least a series of graphic novels following up if you know issues two and three continue to deliver yeah all right now for the okay. last number one, Brian. Oh, boy. Moon Knight. This is written by Jed McKay. Art is by Alessandro Capuccio. Colors are by Rochelle Rosenberg. And letters by Corey Pettit. For a hero and franchise that has been rebooted and restarted. And I, I say that, and a lot of times not much has changed, right? But, the, but like, has gotten a new start. Yeah. So many times. I don't know that any of them have been as fresh and different as this one. Um, well, the Lemire. The Lemire, I think, is the other one that operates at this level. Uh, you know what? That, that is that is a very fair yeah. statement. But, like, that was almost like a... Um, let, me, let me... I think I get where you're coming from. Let me see if... Yeah. I had this conversation with someone else this week about Moon Knight. And mm-hmm. I think there are basically three eras of Moon Knight. There's the sort of classic 80s, kitschy hero-fighting monsters. Mm -hmm. There's the late 90s aughts, hyper-violent, grim, gritty, like David Finch. Yep. And then you get into, I think, the more contemporary take that starts with Bendis and then continues to Lemire and Bemis and then this run. And I think each of these four runs that I just named are trying to find a contemporary version of Moon Knight that is not hyper-violent. That is not an angry man with mental illness and no deeper layers than that. Like, there's purpose, right? Yes. Because that's one of the things that, it, it, as a hero, that you always have to have purpose, right? And I think that is what's hard to rectify in someone that you're saying is mentally ill. Right. And I think the Lemire run is trying to do that in a very big picture sort of way. Let's take all of mm-hmm. this history, all of these conflicting details, all of this internal conflict, and create one story that is of a piece with itself, and that tries to resolve in a big picture way kind of all of those conflicts. Not the the multiple personality disorder elements or any sort of internal conflict, but the actual storytelling conflict Mm -hmm. and i think that sets the stage for what we saw max bemis try to do uh before his run got cut short Mm -hmm. and what this run seems to want to do which is give mark 
or Mr. Knight or Jake Stephen Lockley Grant or Stephen or, Grant. Yeah. yeah. Uh, give Moon Knight autonomy and and some sense of awareness and effort to work within the parameters of his own mental health and try to better himself. Yeah. I think so. I, I think this book does it in a very different way than the Bemis run. And one actually that like, yeah. I'm really excited to see it do, which is to bring back the weird monster stuff. So, and, and that's why I said, I think in, in, a, in a, why it's different is so much uh, like all of what has kind of been done recently, especially with the Lemire run, right. Is the whole, not only do you not know what's real and what's not, neither does he, mm-hmm. right? This really doesn't have any of that. He seems more grounded now than possibly this character has ever been. Well, and I think there is one other element we have to acknowledge here, mm-hmm. which is Jason Aaron's Avengers run. Yes. We talked about this when the Khonshu War happened. There is now no room to debate whether or not Khonshu exists. Correct. You have to accept that Kanshu is real. And this issue does that without even acknowledging directly that you have to because the world was conquered by Kanshu, although it does kind of acknowledge that that happened. It does that by giving Moon Knight a therapist who the Avengers hired who says, look, the Avengers hired me. I believe that this is a fact of the matter. Let's not let that be a question. Right. And it introduces at least one antagonist for Moon Knight who is also familiar with and uh, has a history with Khonshu. Yes. Um, and I think that's why I think this feels so different and, and fresh is because it doesn't play on that. Yeah. You know, that is any of this real or is this just mark imagining what this is right and i think that gives him the ability to have a purpose that he himself has defined in a way right because here's the thing the fact of whether or not country was real is now no longer debatable right but how mark chooses to interpret what that means absolutely is well and it's a really clever inversion because now that we know country mm-hmm. is real mark is estranged from him mm-hmm and Kanshu has been imprisoned by the Aesir, so uh, Mark now feels responsible for carrying the mission of Kanshu on his own. Yes. We've sort of solved the question of does Kanshu exist and replaced it with, yes, but now this is all my responsibility in a totally different way yep. that I think helps shake that up as well. Exactly. Exactly. And essentially what he has done is almost Daredevil-esque in a, um, he has defined this area that is under the protection of conscience. Yes. Uh, and his midnight mission. Yes. Which I love as just the double entendre of that. He oh, sure, literally sure. has a, a midnight mission, a nighttime mission to protect travelers at night. But it's also a mission in the religious sense. This is the building that he operates out of for his religious purpose. Right. Um, and how much do you love Reese? Reese is fantastic. <laughs> Reese is great. I uh, think it's funny you mentioned Daredevil because the context of, of the conversation I had with someone else that I, I alluded to a moment ago was talking about the Moon Knight show. and. 
this person had heard a rumor about the Punisher being in it. I frankly want nothing less than for the Punisher to show up in anything at this point. Um, just because of, let's say, the current cultural climate in the United States. But that was where it kind of clicked with me, and it was before I read this issue, that what I really want to see Moon Knight get back to is this very brass tacks fighting monsters thing. Yeah. So I was super excited to see that become the crux of this as a way specifically to differentiate him from these other street-level heroes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's fighting vampires and and vermin, and yeah. I love the vermin scene. The vermin scene's pretty great. Yes. Um, yeah, it, like, I I can't think of a single part of this book I did not approve of and like. Eight ball. <clears throat> eight ball also. Perfect use of eight ball. Yes. So so we've settled on the fact that you're not going to kill me, right? Yeah. That's a good call. <laughs> um, the, the sort of montage of Moon Knight fighting and arm wrestling and fighting and sweeping uh, made me laugh. I enjoyed yes. that. Um, yes. So good. I could not be happier with this book. Yeah, I, I, I love it. I want so much more of this. I would like to briefly talk about Thor Annual Number One. All right. Uh, this is another one of the Infinite Destinies annuals. This is kind of like the Black Cat one, maybe a little less immediately obviously connected to the sort of Stone Bearers. Although we we do meet, I think, the bearer of the reality stone, or at least a bearer of the reality stone. I don't know that I wholly trust that this character is not being puppeted by someone or something else. There seems like something So is this bigger. the last of these infinite destinies? No, there are eight total. This is number five. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I just, you know, there's five infinity gems six. i didn't know six i'm sorry you're right six six infinity gems. there are six sorry. uh but none of the gems showed up in black cat ah okay um so i think we get six plus the black cat plus i think the last one is probably tying everything up okay that makes, my guess. I guess that makes sense. black cat is involved because uh there is an upcoming story called infinity heist she currently has the gauntlet, and I'm assuming will try to steal the stones once they're out of people and in stones again that's my guess the thing well, I, they're, the, they're the shiniest of shinies, right? They are. And we know yeah. how she likes her shiny things. Mm -hmm. The story is good. I like the story. It's a very, like, Jason Aaron era Thor story. I have to imagine that, like, because these were originally solicited for a year ago, this was probably meant to be a more direct follow-up to uh, War of the Realms. Okay. More than a year ago, in fact. Um, now this is set at the first anniversary of... The end of the War of the Realms. And there's this feast to celebrate the, the, the peace that Thor and everyone has brought. Um, and this reality-wielding entity that has possessed the person who sort of tended to a seed of Yggdrasil that had been cultivated uh, comes and crashes the dinner. And I love the setup here, uh, which is he has presented this very for the man who has everything alternate reality to Thor, but it's one in which Thor immediately becomes aware of the trouble Loki will cause and kills Loki at the first Avengers fight with him, and then just goes down this own dark path of his own. And then the reality wielder pulls him into reality and has him face Thor. Mm. 
Uh, so kind of a fun twist on that for the man who has everything thing. What I really want to get into, though, is the art in this book. Because this is written and penciled by Aaron Cooter. The inks are Cam Smith and Aaron Cooter. Uh, and the colors are Chris O'Halloran with letters by Joe Sabino. This book is gorgeous. This book is like pastoral stylistically in a way that I was not expecting. Um, like it's it's supposed to be set on the in the realm of the Vanir, I think. Okay. Um, no, the Aesir, it's Alfheim, the Light Elves. Uh, but it has this very sort of natural, pastoral, sort of fairy tale setting that then gets interrupted with this sort of 60s comic, uh, vibe. And, like, just seeing the two of those up against each other is a much different contrast than we get with sort of the contemporary comic style versus... 60s comic style that you usually get when you're drawing that that sort of contrast mm-hmm. uh, i just the art in this and the art choices in this from the whole team are really gorgeous uh, you've got some crazy kirby-esque like thor falling through realities through all these pools of kirby crackle and these different moments in time kind of of double page spreads you get some good Hawkeye moments in this issue. Uh, the the running gag is that Thor was supposed to bring a representative of Midgard, and uh, well, Spider Man was busy, <laughs> so it was a lot of fun. And then we get the next chapter at the end of this of Infinite Fury, which is the Nick Fury Junior trying to understand what's going on with the Infinity Stones. Back up, uh, and this. This makes explicit the sort of who the shadowy figure who we've only seen in silhouette so far is. Uh, And let's just say that this is tying directly into what just happened in Heroes Reborn. Oh. There is a character who wants the gems and the gauntlet specifically to bring back that Earth. Oh, I know who that is. There is also a blurb in here somewhere... That says that, oh yeah, the uh, this backup is apparently setting up one of the big plot lines for Marvel Comics for the next five years. Oh. So. That's a, that's a long, that's a big long trail right there. I mean, they, they kind of tend to work in those three to five year, like, big event cycles. Yeah, I, I understand. Um, so I guess we're we're at the beginning of a new one. Okay. All right, is it still good? You and me, but mostly me. Yeah, almost almost all you. Eros Psyche number five. We learn what the rose really is, and uh, hey, every rose has its thorns. The second coming, only begotten son, number three. Jesus finally finds a disciple. Alice in Leatherland, number four. Alice tries to date around, realizes that's not so much for her. And then decides maybe it's time to re-examine herself. She she has a glow up. She's a lightning bug in the fairy tale she writes in the book, and she gets a glow up. I love I love that. I realized it as I said glow up out loud. That that's what happens. Oh my god. Okay, cool. Uh, Everfrost, number two. Van meets her mother, or a version of her mother, and uh, continues on her quest to one get the information she needs to get the hell out of Dodge, and two, get people to stop cloning her son. It's a fun book. 
The Many Deaths of Lila Starr, number four. Uh, Lila has a confrontation with the man who put her out of a job and who finally knows what her job had been. Save yourself, number two, Brian. Um, yes, so um, we find out who Mia really is and how she's related to this um, and um, why a lot of the lovely trio's battles only involve two of them. Justice League number 65, we have the second part of United Order. The Justice League fights Sinmar, while uh, Green Arrow and Black Canary fight the Demon Rose. Incidentally, uh, next week's issue of Checkmate asks, who is the Demon Rose? This book may have just told us. Whoops. I mean, they're both Bendis, so he probably knows what he's doing. Uh, then in the Justice League Dark backup, The Eternal Night Part 2, Batman and Elnara team up to uh, go into the Matrix. Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow, number two. Supergirl and her new companion uh, hitch a series of bus rides. Superman, Red and Blue, number five. Uh, same deal as always. Some favorites here. De-escalation from G Willow Wilson, Valentine Delandro, and Les a- from G Willow Wilson, Valentine Delandro, and Wes Abbott. Uh, is G Willow Wilson doing what G Willow Wilson does best? Writing stories set in convenience stores and generations which is written, colored, drawn, and lettered by Daniel Warren Johnson, is actually something I feel like I haven't seen from him before. A very, like, quiet, conversational, introspective story. Uh, It was surprising and really sweet. Chew number six. Saffron decides it's time for a boat heist. Shadecraft number five. We get the end of the first arc and the end of Shadecraft for now, but they've promised it will return. Uh, it's time to do a heist on a government building. (laughs) Captain Marvel, number 30, we get the finale of Strange Magic. Uh, and everyone has been telling Carol that messing with magic will end poorly for her. Everyone was right. Tell me one character in the Marvel Universe that magic has worked out for. And I mean, I know you're going to say Doctor Strange. No. No, he pays that price all the time. No. Kate Pride. Magic magic. Kate maybe? Pride convinced me I'm wrong. Magic works out for her. <laughs> oh, you meant no, the concept. <laughs> now I'm happy. <laughs> we also had a backup called Ripples uh in this issue, which was written, drawn, and colored by Jamie McKelvey, with letters by Clayton Cowles. This was really good. Uh, Carol's kind of like at a low point after Strange Magic and finds Kamala Khan to ask her, hey, uh, like, I don't really know why I'm doing this anymore. Why did you name yourself after me? Like, what did you see in me? And like, it's a perfect Carol and a perfect Kamala story. I loved it. It was so good. Like, it alone is worth the price of admission. And I'm saying Mm -hmm. that when the main feature is written by Kelly Thompson. Right. Eisner Award winner, Kelly Thompson. Mm, Black Widow. Yeah. Yeah. Gamma Flight. Yeah, Mike, Mike asked me yesterday. He was like, so uh, is Black Widow any good? I was like, well, yeah, it's really good. He was like, yeah, but is it better than Crossover? I was like, 
it's Kelly Thompson. Yang. Like, I love crossover, but damn, Black Widow is so good right now. They scratch different itches. We don't have to pick they our do. favorites. You're exactly, you are exactly right. We have an entire system of how we pick our favorites that doesn't require mm-hmm. any of us to actually really pick, pick our, our favorites. favorites. <laughs> and there's a reason for that. Yeah. Gamma Flight number two. Uh, nobody is walking away from this fight without a scar. Yeah. And you know what? Pivoted quote of the week. Brian's quote of the week. Quote, quote, oh, I was supposed to throw this one to Brian. Whoops, I forgot yeah, you read it. All, right. well, all good. Um, so um, uh, Absorbing Man and Puck come back, are managed to make their way back to the fight. And when they arrive, Puck uh, go, <laughs> looks at Leonard and goes, yeah, lovely, uh, lovely fight you have here, Leonard. Yeah, he's got his father's strength. Yes, yes, and his mother's eyes. Those facial fingers, however, they don't look like a family trait. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. I loved yeah, it. The, the moment of that issue, I realized... Oh, those aren't like spikes. Those are fingers. Those are fingers. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. And um and we find out why all of these creatures are so abominably uh transformed yeah. at the end of this. Yeah. yeah. Guardians of the Galaxy number sixteen. Um you know how you shouldn't bring a sword to a gunfight? Yeah. You probably shouldn't bring a starship to a Dormammu the Living Planet fight. Shit. Miles Morales, Spider-Man, number 28. Miles is beside himself when his clone kidnaps his little sister, uh, but uh, maybe has a little better luck on the bridge than Peter did. We are going to uh, still good our X-Books this week and maybe revisit them once Brian's gotten the chance to read them. Yeah. Marauders 22 uh, gives us... The real history of what happened with Lord Chantel at the Hellfire Gala so many years ago. And New Mutants uh, sees the, the let's call them the outsiders, the, the, the kid outcasts, uh, No Girl and... Uh, Cosmar. And... Cosmar and Anil and mm-hmm. that group. Mm-hmm sees them take responsibility for making sure Gabby gets revived uh, in this this plot line that feels the most like, you know how kids, Brian, sometimes will like see a problem and know it's a big problem and like decide to fix it themselves instead of yep. letting the people who have the skills to fix it, fix it. Yep. Uh, yada, yada, yada. Then they break into, uh, the Fives hangout to steal Gabby's backup to reinstall it themselves. That's their plan, at least. Oh, boy. Uh, I I cannot believe how much I actually love this plot line, as sad as I am about Gabby. Reptile number three, uh, Beto learns where his parents are and is not happy about it. And finally, Wasted Space number 22... Legion makes Molly an offer. This week's books, we're at the home stretch. Yeah, we are. Batman Secret Files Huntress number one, written by Mariko Tamaki, art by David Lapham, colors by Trish Mulvihill, and letters by Rob Lee. If you are caught up on Detective Comics, are you caught up on Detective Comics, Brian? Mm, no. Uh, well, you may have some questions about where Huntress goes from there. This book promises to answer them. Got it. 
Icon and Rocket Season 1, written by Reginald Hudlin and Leon Chills, with pencils by Doug Braithwaite, inks by Andrew Curry and Scott Hanna. We saw the return of Static last month. This is our next Milestone Returns book. Um, kind of same thing I said about Static going into it. Like, the Miles, Milestone Returns one-shot made me really interested in these characters who I don't know much about. Uh, I actually liked their story every bit as much as Statics, and Statics, the character who I knew the best in, in that book. Uh, and I want to see more. So this week right. we get to Superman, Son of Kal-El, number one, written by Tom yeah. Taylor, art by John Timms, colors by Gabe Altabe, letters by Dave Sharp. Brian, you want to take this one? Most excited about this. Yeah, this is our, this is our real, uh, introduction i i I, I hate saying our introduction is john as superman but because we've we have seen him as superman so much now but like this is like the modern beginning of his story yeah as that yeah this is the incontinuity contemporary present day like passing of the torch yes very excited i'm almost as much for what it represents as it itself as, you know this specific also story. this whole team is just fantastic oh hell yeah black beacon number one this is written by ryan k Lindsay with art by sebastian Pires and letters by hame uh this is a story that's been appearing in heavy metal that is getting a separate comic book release. Uh, it's a six-issue miniseries. Honestly, I don't know a whole lot about it, other than Ryan K. Lindsay and Sebastian Pires are both, like, names who I would read this for on their own. Uh, Lindsay did... Uh... Oh, shoot. I just talked about it. Everfrost, or is doing Everfrost right now, and did uh, Eternal the sort of graphic novella a couple of years ago from Black Mask mm-hmm. that was fantastic. Uh, Sebastian Pires is an artist who I followed for a long time now on Twitter, whose work I just love. Uh, super excited for this. The colors in the preview are like bold and vibrant and fun. Cannot wait to see see how this reads. And last one. Amazing Fantasy number one, uh, written, drawn, and colored by Kari Andrews, with letters by Joe Sabino. This is the uh, five-issue miniseries about sort of the classic versions of Cap, Black Widow, and Peter Parker being pulled into this almost Elseworlds story. Um, Kari Andrews has written and drawn some stuff I've really loved, so I'm super excited to see where this goes. You know, this almost struck me as almost like a what if. Right? Yeah, like it's kind of got that vibe to it. Like I, yeah. I think I even said Elseworlds, where like, yeah, it feels this like this outside of time thing. I think that's obviously by design because it's pulling sure. 40s Cap and 60s or 70s Black Widow and 60s Peter Parker. Yep. And I think that does it. That's going to do it. We would like to thank Chase Parker for our intro voiceover. Panelology is a member of the Certain POV Network. If you're looking for other cool podcasts about popular culture, go to certainpov.com. You can visit us at panelologypodcast.com, support us at patreon.com slash panelology, get merch at bit.ly slash panelologymerch, capital P, capital M, 
or send us your questions, comments, or whatever at bit.ly slash panelology mailbag. Capital P, capital M. I'm Alex. And I'm Brian. Go read comics. CPOV. CertainPOV.com.